This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the HSBC Global Research Macro Viewpoint, our weekly review of the key reports from our economists and strategists across the globe. Coming up this week, we look at why Asia's economies face a bumpy second half of the year. We examine China's fiscal and monetary response to the latest wave of COVID-19. And we look at what's next for the oil market as concerns mount over the global economy. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, the 30th of June, 2022. Our full disclosures and disclaimers can be found in the link attached to this podcast. Hello, I'm Aline Van Dyne. And I'm Piers Butler. We begin in Asia, where our team has just published their latest quarterly report, and headwinds in the region are stiffening with inflationary pressures, including rising food prices, and a weakening trade cycle posing risks to growth. Fred Newman is our chief Asia economist, and he joins us from Hong Kong. Fred, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Fred, what's your broad outlook for Asia over the next quarter? It's a bit of a convergence is a, is a theme we like to run with. And what we mean by this is that China's economy will likely pick up steam in the third quarter, uh, partly because they're snapping back, quote unquote, from uh, you know, the virus restrictions uh, that we saw, containment measures uh, that impacted the economy in the second quarter. And so China's economy should improve at the same time in the rest of Asia, we may see the beginnings of a slowdown. So in that sense, Asia's economies are converging because China's picking up, the rest of Asia is slowing down, so they're going to meet in the middle again. Um, and the slowdown in the rest of the region is really due to slowing exports. Uh, we see already in electronics space, for example, that new orders have decelerated quite rapidly. U.S. consumers are starting to pull back. So broadly speaking, that export engine is starting to spike. And that's why, really, there's a bit of a convergence in growth rates across Asia. Like everywhere else, interest rates are going up across Asia. What sort of impact is that having? Well, rising interest rates certainly slow down economic growth, and many Asian economies really have to ramp up their interest rate hikes. So if you think about ASEAN, for example, Indonesia hasn't even started yet, but we think they will they will start soon. Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, India, Australia, um, Korea, all of these economies will continue to raise rates in the third quarter, and that will slow down domestic demand in addition to the slowdown in exports. But there are two important exceptions actually to the tightening story. One is the PBOC in China actually has an easing bias still because they need to pump more stimulus into the economy to get the the engine running again. And and in Japan, the, the BOJ is is not really wavering from its its path, which is to keep maximum easing, obviously reflecting the weaker yen. But but those are the two standouts. Central banks in Asia just simply not budging at this point. Fred, is there any threat of a recession? So we don't think there's really a recession lurking in the wings for Asia just yet. Uh, might be a you know an issue for late 2023, perhaps in some markets like New Zealand. 
Um, but it's not really a broad-based risk. Now, we talked about the slowdown in exports. That certainly is always a headwind for Asia. But remember that we also expect China's demand to stabilize. And that's very important because it puts a floor under export growth for the rest of the region. In fact, China is a more important export market than the U.S. or Europe. And so to the extent that we do see stabilization demand in China, pickup in demand, that actually helps us avoid a recession in the rest of the region. And so from that perspective, um, you know, the recession risk really isn't all too high at this stage uh, across Asia. Now, food inflation is a key focus of the report. What's the main takeaway? So it's still a risk that we felt strongly needed to be highlighted um, because so far, actually, food inflation in Asia has lagged global food prices. Um, and you might wonder why, because, of course, globally, food prices are up quite sharply. The reason why they're lagging is in part because Asian diets are more rice based and wheat based and global rice prices have actually gone sideways. So unlike wheat, which has soared in price, although it's started to stabilize, but um, we haven't really seen that same impact on rice. Now, one of the risks going forward is that we might see disruptions in trade for rice. Uh, India accounts for 40% of global rice exports, more than Thailand and Vietnam combined, which are the next two and third biggest rice exporters. Should we see potentially disruptions to rice exports from India, that would potentially have ripple effects across the region. And so Therefore, we still think that there's a a risk here that food prices in Asia will continue to rise. Um, And so in this this, next few months, uh, we really urge uh, investors, um, our client base, uh, certainly to to keep a close watch on food prices because it could be quite disruptive. 25% of Asia's uh, CPI baskets is food. Uh, Only 10% is energy. So food potentially is much more disruptive. Fred, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Fred mentioned China's battle against COVID-19. This week, our economists and rate strategists teamed up to examine the government's fiscal and monetary response to recent outbreaks. Jing Liu, chief economist for Greater China, can talk us through the details. Jing, you've been comparing the latest COVID wave in China to the initial outbreak in 2020. What have you found? Right. So I think, you know, uh, this is basically consistent with the nature of Omicron variant uh, versus the original one. So this time around, we have seen it spreads more widely, uh, prolongs longer. Um, and, uh, you know, in response, uh, the government also uh, have imposed quite stringent containment measures in order to uh, stop the transmission uh, chain. So um, I think, you know, in that sense, um, uh, people start to worry about uh, will the economy get a harder hit or a comparable hit as back in 2020. And what about the economic policy response? Is that comparable? Right. So I think, you know, uh, basically this time around, uh, the good thing is Omicron, uh, the variant is not as toxic 
as the original one. But given the widespread and long-lasting uh, nature, we see the government, uh, you know, already try to put together the measures which are, in in large sense, uh, comparable to the 2021. For example, when it comes to the fiscal policy, we see uh, the uh, very familiar uh, measures such as tax cut, um, um, you know, uh, basically the issuance of a special government bonds, uh, as well as uh, various uh, deferrals of the um, uh, social security payment, um, you know, and also um, the rental waivers, so on and so forth. So I think for the fiscal policy, uh, in many ways, uh, it's uh, comparable. Uh, when it comes to monetary policies, uh, probably this time around, PBOC is uh, not given as punchy kind of uh, policy uh, support as last time for obvious reasons. Uh, Fed, The Fed is hiking, so there is some concern on the divergence of monetary policy. But still, uh, if they want to, they can inject liquidity through the relending schemes and so on. And is there anything that's concerning investors in terms of the current policy response? Yeah, sure. Because um, last time we saw China rebounded with a very sharp V-shape. And uh, accordingly, the focus for the uh, PBOC and other financial regulators uh, start to be, uh, you know, the kind of a speculation uh, in the market. So they start to become very hawkish and withdraw some of the support in the second half of 2020. So the question naturally uh, from uh, fixed income investors um, is, will China rebound very quickly? So the policy support will uh, fade away in the second half of this year. We don't think so. I think, um, you know, basically this time around, um, because of the nature of uh, the Omicron, actually the lifting of containment measures by the government tend to be slower than last time. As a result, the you know, the disruption to, for example, supply chain uh, will also um, only normalize uh, with a uh, longer time. So the recovery path will be more like a U-shape or a V-shape with a much slower uh, slope uh, going upward. Um, you know, with such, in order to engineer a, moder- a moderate recovery, the government will stay accommodative on all policy fronts. Ying, are there any concerns from investors when it comes to funding the recovery? I think one question we get a lot is where does the money come from, Uh, especially given the local government seem to be um, having some kind of stress on their balance sheet. Um, Our answer is this time around, we actually will count on central government support quite a bit. Uh, And we see uh, that's not our base case, but there's a possibility um, for central government to issue a special treasury bond in the second half of this year and then use that uh, uh, proceeds to uh, transfer to local governments. And local government also have the uh, capacity to front load the quota from 2023 in order to uh, satisfy their fiscal needs. So I think with those things together, um, you know, we we are confident uh, China should have enough funding to support the economic recovery. And on top of that, when the local official reshuffle uh, come into an end, um, you know, the policy implementation will be more rigorous. That's a great summary, Jing. Thank you. Thank you. A recovery in Russian supply and growing concerns of the global demand outlook have combined to take some of the heat out of oil markets in recent weeks. 
So what's next for prices? Gordon Gray, Global Head of Oil and Gas Equity Research, joins me now. Gordon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Gordon, let's take uh, Russian supply first. Uh, how is it that it's rising again? What, what are the factors behind that? Well, immediately after the, the start of the war in Ukraine, supply fell by at least a million barrels per day as a number of buyers pulled out from the market. But what we've seen is a, a sharper pickup in buying from Asia, I think, that most people expected with um, buying in China, buying in India, ramping up by a combined level of over a million barrels per day. But, but the picture is very different in Europe, isn't it, where it's all about uh, bans. What's the situation there? It, it is. You know, we've, we've just had, uh, within recent weeks, an announcement by the EU of an embargo on, um, on importing Russian oil, as well as an embargo on insurance of shipping uh, Russian oil cargoes worldwide. But none of those have actually kicked in yet. They're effective towards the end of this year. So you know, what we've seen in Europe is a significant reduction of, of buying of, of Russian crude oil. It happened quite quickly um, in, in April, May. There's still more to happen, but those measures haven't officially kicked in yet. And the third element is, is what is kind of uh, developing now, which is this fear of a recession. How is that going to play into the supply and demand equation? Well, demand in the, in the first and second quarter is actually down a bit from, from the fourth quarter last year anyway. Part of that has been a bit of a slowdown because of price effects. There's some seasonality in there as well, normally at this time of year. Um, but also there's been a quite significant effect from the lockdowns in, in China. You know, if we, if we look from here towards the back end of this year, I think you can expect a bit of a boost to demand um, as and when those lockdowns are eased. Um, playing off against that, though, we're already seeing signs of erosion to demand in the latest figures in the US, for example, for gasoline demand, diesel demand. Um, and I think demand estimates have come down. I think they could well come down even more, particularly looking into next year. Uh, the, the uncertainty is, is, is leaving a very, very um, clouded picture for demand. But I do suspect consensus estimates on demand growth into 2023 are probably too high. Nevertheless, you're telling us that we shouldn't get too carried away about the supply and demand situation. It's still going to remain re relatively balanced? Well, I think uh, th there are a couple of big ifs around this. If buying of Russian crude by India and China continues to ramp up, as we think it will, you know, then and, and if demand growth expectations come down, then the market looks like it could be broadly balanced over the next one to two years but broadly balanced at a level where OPEC spare capacity is falling to levels that by historical averages are extremely low, where there's just very, very little flex in the system. Um, so you need demand growth expectations to come down. You need uh, for, for, for the equation to work, I guess, and for the market not to get overheated once more. Gordon, thanks very much. Thank you. So that's all from us today. Thank you to our guest, Fred Newman. Jing Lu and Gordon Gray. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.